chapter 37. This is the family history of Jacob. This is not the Joseph story. Joseph is the main character, and most time and space is given to him. But unlike the story of Abraham, where it's all about him, and then when we get to Isaac, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and even with Isaac, Ishmael is a major role there. But Ishmael is minor. He's a minor character who just kind of shows up here and there, and it shows that he is a big part of the story because he's a descendant of um, Abraham, but he's not a major character, which means the story is not really about him. When we get to Jacob, we see that, yes, Jacob is there in Esau, and Esau has a minor role, but he's just a minor character. The story doesn't focus on him. When we get to Joseph, he is the main character, and most stories about him. But when we get to Judah and Simeon, we're going to find out they're pretty major characters. They don't seem to just be there to help the story move along like typical minor characters do. They're pretty major in the fact that we're going to get an entire chapter dedicated in chapter 38 just to Judah, which if you probably read that, you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? It's a weird chapter. And then Judah is going to play a major role at the end of the Joseph story. So this really isn't just the Joseph story in the same way that it was just the Isaac or Jacob story. It's more the family. And probably what we have here is the Jacob story continuing because notice that a lot of times that these people, the father, when they're, they're dying and they leave the story, and so one of two things happen, like Abraham dies right before the Jacob story be, or Isaac story begins. And then when the Jacob story begins, Isaac is not dead yet, but he just isn't part of the story anymore. And then you just briefly hear, oh, by the way, Isaac died. But when we get to the Joseph story or the family of Jacob's story, Jacob is still a major character. He's still there with the dreams being told. He's there when the sons come back and tell him about the death. And then he becomes a major player when they come there. They're starving and he's still leading the family and the sons are obeying him. When he tells them, don't go back, I'm not giving up Benjamin, they obey him. And then he becomes a major player in chapter 48 and 49 when he begins to bless all of his sons. So unlike all the other stories where the father either just becomes a, a name or dies, Jacob is still a major role here. So in some ways, this isn't the Joseph story. It's the family of Jacob or the part two of Jacob's story. And so when we get into this, we see that this is where we talked about how the first section, chapters 1 through 11, are very episodic. They're very quick stories. The characters are very minor. We barely get any dialogue from them, but God is actively and directly involved speaking and doing things. When we get to the Abraham story, the characters become the forefront. We get lots of dialogue. They're, they're fully developed, dynamic characters. And God only speaks a handful of times to Abraham and only visits one time directly. When we get to the, I, the Jacob story, we, the Jacob story becomes even less episodic. We now finally start having this well-developed plot structure, and every story seems to connect to the previous episode. And then God only really appears a couple of times, and those are only in visions. 
Never does he directly speak to them or come down and actively involve, only through visions. Now when we come to the Joseph story, the Joseph story is the most fully developed narrative in all of Genesis. It is very enigmatic. We're not given very much narrative commentary. Like a lot of places we're told the narrator tells you what he thinks about what's happening. But hardly ever does a narrator tell us, give us any guidance on how to evaluate Joseph. So when Joseph is telling his dreams to his brothers, you're like, okay, is he ignorant or is he arrogant? Normally the narrator would tell you that, but he doesn't. So at this point, the narrator kind of takes hands off of his commentary and God only really appears three times in the story, and even then he doesn't appear. It's only through dreams. And there's only one time at the very end of the story that he comes to Jacob and says, it's okay to go to Egypt. I'll bless you there. But other than that, he speaks through three dreams that are very metaphorical, and he doesn't even speak. He just communicates through images. So God is very not involved here in a direct revelation kind of a sense, even though it's so obvious that he is very directly involved in the story. So it is in the Joseph story that probably has its closest connection to our lives, where we don't see God appearing before us with angels and pronouncing things, and we don't hear God speaking to us, and God doesn't come in visions and things, but yet at the same time we see God very much involved in our lives as he's doing things. And so the Joseph story becomes a lot like what it really is most of the time. And so it becomes very developed. The first two dreams that we get with Joseph, we don't even know whether they're from God or not. Now, as you keep reading, it becomes so obvious that they're from God. But if all you have is chapter 37, it just sounds like some kid's dreams. It's not until later at the end of the story you're like, okay, that was definitely God. The next two sets of dreams, we do are told that they're from God. But this is the only means of communication, really. Now, the Joseph story follows a plot structure as well. And the plot structure is this. The introduction is this happy-go-lucky family. Not. Okay? <laughs> it's this family that we're told that Joseph is 17 years old. He is shepherd, keeping the flocks. His brothers are there. And all, by the way, everyone hates him because Jacob loves him. And that's our introduction. Then we're told about the dreams. The dreams introduce the conflict. The, dream, the conflict is not that his brothers hate him. Because in chapter 38, the brothers aren't hating. In chapter 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, they're not hating. It's only 37 that they hate him and they try to kill him. So that's not the main conflict. The main conflict is that God has given him a dream that he's going to become a ruler over, the over all of his brothers, and they're going to bow down and worship him. And that does not happen throughout the entire story. And even when he finally becomes a ruler, around chapter 40 and 41, his brothers still have not bowed down to him, which means the dream has not come to his fulfillment. So the conflict is that he is to be a ruler with his brothers bowed down to him, and then his brothers try to kill him and sell him to slavery. And you're like, well, that's so far away from the dream. And then he begins to rise in Potiphar's home, and you're like, oh, here we go. And then he's falsely accused and thrown in prison. And then he meets the cupbearer and the baker, and they hear the dreams, and you're like, oh, now he's going to get out. And the cupbearer forgets him. And then he finally rises to power, but at this point you're like, okay, this isn't going to last long. 
But even then, if it lasts long, the brothers haven't come back. And you don't even, they don't even know he exists. So it's not until finally that when the brothers bow down to him, that becomes the resolution of the dreams that were promised but never happened until the end of his life. But even then, they're not completely fulfilled because you have to put that dream in the context of the Abrahamic promises. And the context is, I will make you a great nation, rise to power as a ruler over Egypt, and I will bless you with the wisdom that you need to rule so that you can be a blessing to the world. And you realize that the reason that God wanted Joseph to become a ruler of the world is to save them from the famine. And so it's not until the brothers are totally saved from the famine that the conflict to the story finally comes to a final resolution. Because here's what you must understand. By the time you get to the end of the Genesis story, it should be firmly ingrained in your head that God blesses you only so that you can be a blessing to others. Yes, he blesses you because he loves you. Yes, he blesses you because he wants to redeem you. But he, ultimately, the purpose was to be his image, which means most of the time he's blessing you because he loves you. But if he is a God that loves others, even to the point of self-sacrifice, then the ultimate goal is that you take that love and then love others even to the point of self-sacrifice. So this point, at the end of the Joseph story, it should be ingrained in your head that the reason that you have the money that you have, the reason that you have the job promotion that you have, the reason that you have the expensive house or car or yacht or boat or second house or whatever that you have is to be a blessing to the world. That's the only reason God's really given to you. Yes, he's given it to you because he's good, he loves you, and what father would not hand his son a bread if he asked for it and not a rock or a serpent? But he did not give that to you so that you could be selfish, unlike his character, and hoard it to yourself. And this is why Jesus comes along and says, you can learn some things from the world. Use your money to win and influence friends. And what Jesus means is usually the world uses their money to win and influence friends so that they can feel complete. And, hey, look, people like me. But Jesus is saying, learn from that. But in the context of his ministry, you use your money to influence friends so that you can be a blessing to them and they'll come into the kingdom of God. And so the, only ex the, the, the example that I think that works well is when I was growing up, there were people who built swimming pools above ground swimming pools in their backyard. And I don't know if that's still a thing. I don't live in a neighborhood where I can afford that. But the neighborhoods, that was a thing to do when I was growing up. It was like everybody was like getting above ground swimming pools. And there's nothing wrong with that. But usually what I remember hearing some of my friends' parents, especially the father, complaining like, now everybody in the neighborhood wants to be my friend now that I built this. And Gia's perspective, exactly. Build a swimming pool. And when everybody wants to become your friend, all of a sudden, let them be your friend. Yes, it's shallow. Yes, it's incomplete. But what do you expect from people who are not saved? And I guarantee you that you're going to have more success evangelizing the gospel when they're in your backyard using your pool and they're eating your hot dogs and drinking your pop 
and they're having fun and relaxed at your love and you share the gospel than if you randomly knock on their doors and try to share the gospel. And that's what Jesus meant. Are there going to be consequences? Yes. Some kid is going to put a hole in your pool. Probably. Yes, they're going to eat your hot dogs. Yes, they're going to tear up your lawn. But if you believe that God gave you the ability to afford that pool to begin with, then you have to believe that if you're using that for God's kingdom, then he'll give you the ability to maintain that gift that he gave you in order to bless the world, just like he did for them. Because one of the things I forgot to mention is back in chapter 35, remember chapter 34 ended with the rape of Dinah and the brothers going out and killing everybody, and Jacob was afraid of what everybody would do to him now. But at the end of chapter 35, when he got right with God and buried his idols, it says that all the nations around him became afraid of him and his God. You have nothing to fear if you're using your stuff for the kingdom of God. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be persecution because God does not promise to make your life happy-go-lucky. But he will bless you, and he will take care of you. And that's what we'll see with Joseph. Joseph's life is not made like Disney World because he followed God. But in the midst of the suffering, there's incredible amount of blessings of what God does with them. And so this is the main point of the story here, is that God is going to lift Joseph up in order to be a blessing to the world. And this becomes the foundational theme that helps you understand the Abrahamic promises and becomes the foundation for everything else in the Bible. Everything else should be interpreted in this light. There are four things also that make the Joseph story important. Because now we're coming to the end of the story. And we're going to be going into Exodus after Genesis. And the first thing that the Joseph story does is it links you to Exodus. Because when you start Exodus, you're like, wait a minute, these people are enslaved in Egypt. And Joseph is the most powerful man. And so this Joseph story explains to you how these people who are supposed to be living in Canaan are living in Egypt at the beginning of the Exodus story. And so it creates that link. The second thing it does is it begins to unfold the theme of partial fulfillment. When we get to the end of Joseph's story, they're not living in the land anymore. Approval approved by God. It's the only time living outside the land is actually approved by God because he's doing other things. And so it begins this theme of none of these books are going to end with fulfillment of the promises. And it begins the link. So it links you in. Don't expect fulfillment of the promises yet in the First Testament. Third, it shows you that even though God is not directly speaking and acting in the way that we can see, obviously, the fact that a Hebrew Semitic slave that the Egyptians despise, they won't even sit at the same table with you, rises to become the second most powerful person in the most powerful empire of the world, shows God's hand at work. And the fourth thing that it does is it shows the true meaning of to be a blessing to the world. And we already talked about that. That Joseph was put in power so that you can see how God will use us to bless the world. Chapter 37. 
But Jacob lived in the land where his father stayed in the land of Canaan. Sorry, it starts in chapter verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. This is the tenth and final Toledot account, generation. Joseph, who was 17 years old, was taking care of the flocks with his brothers, and now he was a younger, youngster working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha and his father's wives. Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, it's interesting that we're told that Joseph is working in the fields with the sons of the two maidservants and not the sons of Leah. We don't know why. Could it be that the father has realized that he's got to keep, that maybe the sons of Leah hate him more than the maidservant sons do? Because they're maidservant sons. They're like, they're not going to get anything anyways, anything significant. Where Leah's sons have more of a, uh, a claim to headship? I don't know. We don't know. But it's interesting that there's a distinction being made there. And that when all the sons go off later in chapter 37, Joseph is kept home. That there's intentional keeping Joseph separated for the majority of the sons that is going on in Jacob's part. And just like he was separating Leah's sons and Leah and the head of the camp to die first, and Joseph and Rachel at the end, he still seems to be doing that. He lets Joseph hang out with the lesser sons who know that they'll never inherit anything great but he keeps them separated from the greater sons who do have a desire for inheritance. Don't know. Just interesting observation. So he brings back a bad report. Now, once again, what does that mean? Now, what's interesting is that this Hebrew word for bad report is usually, every time it's used somewhere else in the Bible, it's used in a very negative sense, like an evil sense, like doing something evil. And so that use of that word communicates that Joseph is doing this intentionally to try to say, hey, I know how I'm going to really hurt my brothers. I will tell on them and make up some kind of story. And it's usually connected to false prophecies where you make up things, okay, or tall tales. So that word seems to suggest that he's making things up for his, about his brothers to get him in trouble, which is a very negative character trait, a spoiled little brat character trait about him. But at the same time, is Joseph arrogantly saying, hey, look at me, I'm better than you? Or is he innocently just saying, look, my brothers are screwing up? Now, one of the things I hate about don't be a tattletale is it's actually a crime to not be a tattletale. <laughs> if you see a murder or a rape or something like that and you don't report it, you go to jail. So you're actually teaching your kids not to confess crimes when they see it. And on top of that, God holds you for not bringing evil out into the light, even if it's other people doing it. There's serious judgments from God by not confessing things that you see somewhere else. Now, I do know what people mean by tattletales. like one thing to go out and just constantly say things about people because you want to see them get in trouble versus come back and genuinely tell me something, and your heart attitude of why you're telling it is very important. But we need to be very careful about just cold turkey, black and white saying, don't do that. So that's the question. Is he bringing a bad report because he's a righteous man and is reporting evil to his father who should do something about it? Or is he saying, I'm going to get my brothers in trouble? Don't know. The Hebrew word here seems to suggest that he wants to get them in trouble which seems spoiled little brat. 
But at the same time, in less than a year, this 17-year-old boy is going to be such a righteous person that he's going to resist the almost completely naked Potiphar's wife. And he's going to have an incredibly theological development idea of why God has allowed him to suffer and that he can't sin against God and that he's wise enough that he's rising up in the ranks of Potiphar's home. And that's not the character of a spoiled little brat who wants to get people in trouble. I've never seen spoiled little brats operate like that. And usually, yes, spoiled little brats can turn into that one day, but usually it takes a lot more than just one year of being broken and one, more than one year of being taught and trained and by life. And so the circumstances of how this kid in less than one year becomes that guy in chapter 39 seems to suggest that he's righteous here. But the Hebrew word seems to suggest that he's not. And I don't know. But that's, the narrator doesn't give us any commentary here. So you're just left to read the story and try to figure out what is going on with him here. So he brings his report back. Now, they hate him. They hate him. He also talks about, we're told that it's Israel. So he brings a bad report back to Israel. And Israel loved Joseph more than the other sons. This is one of the first times that he actually begins to start being called Israel in just a narrative sense. Now, the Bible is going to go back and forth from Israel to Jacob, Israel to Jacob, all throughout the story, and you're going to be like, okay, come on, God, make up your mind. He's either Jacob or he's Israel. We don't know exactly why God is doing here, but here's what some scholars have noticed, a pattern of what's going on. First, Jacob tends to use, be more, used more frequently than Israel, since that is his name. So Jacob is used to a greater percentage than Israel is, since that is technically his birth name. But at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, but when God changed Abraham's name, they just used that bam from that point on. Second, the name Jacob always refers to the individual, while the name Israel can be used to the individual or the people. So typically, when you see Jacob doing something, it's Jacob. But when you see Jacob in the family or Jacob over the family, the name Israel is used to refer to the group. And so Jacob tends to be the individual and Israel tends to be the group. The other thing, too, is that Israel also seems to be used more when he is doing something good where Jacob is used more when he's doing something bad. So when Jacob is acting in his ungodly kind of a character, that's when he uses the name. When he's acting in a more godly, righteous way, then God uses the name Israel. And then the trump card is, every single time Joseph is mentioned in the same sentence, it's always Israel. No matter what what is happening with the first three, if Joseph is in the sentence, it automatically becomes Israel. Why? We can take guesses, but those are just patterns and observations that people have made as we've looked through. Now, when you get to the prophets, God will use Jacob and Israel interchangeably too, and that's a whole different story, but we're not in the prophets.